I invite you to open your Bibles to Ezra chapter 7. Uh, We have been covering uh, this book uh, a a chapter at a time, right? We're all the way through chapter, uh, all the way up to chapter 7. There's only three remaining. As we come to this text today, we are going to slow down. I'm going to take the first 10 verses of Ezra 7 today. Michael's going to pick up the rest of it next week. Uh, the first 10 verses, by the way, are an overview. So, so what he covers in these first 10 verses is like he tells us everything that's going to happen. And then in the rest of 7 and 8, he goes into more detail and says, now I'm going to tell you the exact details of everything I just kind of summarized in the first 10 verses. So uh, why would we slow down? I mean, we're, we're clipping along. Why would we slow down at Ezra 7? I'm going to give you two reasons. The first is this. Between Ezra chapter 6 and Ezra 7, there is a 58-year gap of time. Uh, we covered this in the introduction that uh, in this 58-year gap of time, the book of Esther, Queen Esther, all that that goes on, it happens in that period of time. And I want to suggest that the gap itself has something important to say about spiritual growth and about kingdom influence. And then secondly, we're slowing down because in Ezra chapter 7, we meet, ta-da, Ezra. Has anyone been wondering, where's Ezra, the guy who wrote the book? You know, there's names all over it. Well, we meet Ezra as he leads a second wave, okay, a second group of exiles in Babylon back to Jerusalem. You'll remember this, again, from the introduction, and we've been reviewing this. Chapters 1 through 6 are about rebuilding the, what, the temple, okay? That's chapters 1 through 6. We hit this gap, and then we pick up in 7, all the way 7, 8, 9, 10. It's about reforming the people, okay? It's about reforming the people. Rebuild the temple, reform the people. Uh, Because he's not a household name, uh, for most Christians, we don't fully grasp the influence that Ezra had upon Judaism, the nation of Israel, and quite frankly, upon our own faith. If, if I were to ask you, who are the big, the big names, you know, in the Old Testament and in Old Testament Judaism, I think we would, we would get them, and, and I would suggest there's, there's three at the top that, you know, there's the top three, there's this gap, and there's the rest, and I want to suggest it would be Abraham, Moses, and David, Okay. Ask a Jew, who, who are the most influential voices? Who are the, you know, the, the top of the, the, the list on influence for Judaism and, 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 and the kingdom of God? And they would, they would do the same. I mean, it would be, right, it'd be Abraham, Moses, David, and Ezra. You know, we would go, Ezra? Yes, Ezra. Ezra, to, 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 to the Jews, he's the second Moses. I mean, he's, he's right up there. When we go through our text today, we'll, we'll see that, you know, the second Moses idea is, very, is pretty obvious in the text. We haven't talked about it a lot, but if you will read the book of Ezra and in your mind go, okay, this sounds a lot like the Exodus. They come out, they're in the land. You see, you'll just see the themes repeated. And we'll see today, they come out of the land, okay? Ezra brings them out of captivity, 
into the promised land and give them the law. What did Moses do? He brought them out of captivity into the land and gave them the law. It was Ezra who founded what's called the Great Synagogue. The Great Synagogue, it's a, it's a, it's a group of 120 scribes and Pharisees. And these, these men under Ezra's leadership canonized the Old Testament. Canon just means rule or measure. When it's canonized, it means these books fit the measure of an inspired book of God. Men and women, the Old Testament itself, you see, was canonized under the leadership of Ezra. Uh, we believe Ezra probably wrote First and Second Chronicles. Of course, he wrote Ezra. May have had a hand in Nehemiah. Maybe most importantly, it was Ezra who founded the synagogue and synagogue worship. I want you to think about this. We, we open our New Testaments and the Jews are worshiping synagogues. They didn't worship in synagogues, you see, way back in the Old Testament. This was what Ezra instituted. And how about this? He instituted that which held the nation together through 400 years of silence. How about that for kingdom influence through one man? We want you to know, when I say we, I'm talking about the elders. I'm, I'm talking about Bill, Michael, and I, uh, Rob Sweet, you know, and Franklin Campus Teaching Pastor. We, we want you to know, we, we chose the book of Ezra largely, in, largely because of what we're going to learn about the man in chapter 7, 8, 9, and 10. I, I'm really not exaggerating when I say that. We're coming, in fact, in chapter 7, verse 10, we come to the key verse in the book. I would suggest it's a key verse for your life and for mine. Absolutely a key verse for us as a community of faith. I would say it's, it's the key verse for why we're studying Ezra right now and why we're doing it at this time in our own history as a community of faith. Let's stand together one more time. We'll stand as we read the text. I'll make some comments as we go. Follow along with me. This is God's word to you and to me this day. Ezra chapter 7, verse 1. Now after these things, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, there went up Ezra, son of Sariah, son of Azariah, son of Hilkiah, son of Shalom, son of Zadok, son of Ahitub, son of Amariah, son of Azariah, son of Merioth, son of Zerahiah, son of Uzi, son of Buki, son of Agun, Son of, I just see you, y'all are tracking with me. Abishua, son of Phineas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron. Now, why did he go through the genealogy? To show us that Ezra, the man who shows up on the scene, is a son of. Aaron, the chief priest. All the way, you know, this is Moses and Aaron. He's the son of Aaron. Verse 6 This Ezra went up from Babylon 
And he was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses. When you hear this word scribe, don't go all the way to the New Testament because they got a really bad rap in the New Testament and they deserved it. Come back here in our context, a scribe is one who records, who accounts for. He, he probably had a role within the Persian kingdom, quite frankly. Uh, if I can say this, he, he worked for the king at some official capacity probably as a scribe. But it also means a learner, one who, and it says here, studies the law of God, interprets it for those in exile, helps them understand it. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses, which the Lord God of Israel had given. And the king granted him all he requested because the hand of the Lord his God was upon him. Some of the sons of Israel and some of the priests and Levites, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the temple servants went up to Jerusalem in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes. This is who went with him. Verse 8, he came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. From the first month, he began to go up from, first of the first month, he began to go up from Babylon. And on the first of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem, four-month travel, because the good hand of his God was upon him. And then our verse, for Ezra had set his heart to study. It's literally seek to seek the law of the Lord, and to practice it, and to teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. Father, please add your blessing to this public reading of your word. And we would pray that it would be your spirit who teaches us this day and teaches us in such a way that we don't just understand the text, but that we'd live it and be changed by it. In Christ's name, amen. You can be seated. Um, I mentioned the gap and the man, and that really forms our outline today, okay? So if you're thinking in an outline form, I'm going to do two things today. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to actually exegete the gap in the text. So there's the gap, and then I'm going to talk about the man, okay? Two things. First, the gap, verse 1, begins this way. Now, after these things, after what things? After everything we studied in chapters 1 through 6, after the first exiles returned with Zerubbabel, started to build the temple, met resistance, the prophets came and said, keep going. They finished the temple. I want you to keep your eye on the end of chapter 6. After all these things, the temple is done. They're rejoicing. They're celebrating. They're worshiping in the temple. After all of these things, what what I don't want you to miss is... That when we pick up this text in Ezra 7.1, the temple has been up and functioning for 58 years, okay? It's almost old hat. It's, they've been worshiping in the temple for almost 60 years. So with the temple in place, uh, Ezra comes back. Now, remember I said there's, there's chapter 6, and I'm going to put it down here, and then there's chapter 7. Ezra comes back in chapter 7, and we said the first part was rebuild the temple. The second part's reform the people. So if think about it. If the temple's done and they're worshiping God, why does Ezra need to come back and reform them? What happened between 6 and 7 that they need reforming? You've got to skip ahead just a little bit. Go over to chapter 9 and look at chapter 9, verses 1 to 4. Listen to what happens after he gets settled. They're back in Jerusalem. It says, now when these things had been completed, the prince, 
princes approached me, the leaders saying, approached Ezra, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands. According to their abominations, those of the Canaanites, the Hittites, Perizzites, Jebusites, Ammonites, the Moabites, Egyptians, and the Amorites. And they have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and for their sons so that the holy race, remember, they were to be set apart because Messiah is going to come through them and they're going to bless the whole world. But, this, but they must remain set apart to bless the world. There's a problem. The holy race has intermingled with the peoples of the lands. Indeed, the hands of the princes and the rulers have been foremost in this, and I've underlined this in my Bible, in this unfaithfulness. Within one generation, mark mark this, chapter 6, within one generation, 60 years, chapter 7, they are right back where they were 150 years ago because it was 150 years prior that they were unfaithful to their God. Remember, northern kingdom, southern kingdom, northern kingdom was wiped away by the Assyrians, then the southern kingdom was overturned by Babylon. It's not because Babylon was great, it's because God is great, and God disciplined his people because they were unfaithful to him, and they went away into captivity. And now, 60 years after the temple's rebuilt, they're right back where they were spiritually doing that which is unfaithful to God. And I want to suggest that this in and of itself is instructive for you and for me. I believe every Christian lives in the gap between Ezra 6 and Ezra 7. We all live in this gap. You look at the end of chapter 6 and you go, because, you know, think about what we just did. We've just, we've just did what what they were doing, celebrating the goodness of God. God, Jesus, you've saved us. The cross, you've set us apart for a a people unto yourself so that we would be a blessing to the world. We've just sung of all that. Chapter six, okay? they, They had just sung of all. They had just sung and celebrated all that. And then 60 short years later, one generation later, unfaithful. Let me put it in our terms. It would be this. 60 years from now, our kids and their children are indistinguishable from the world. Just blend it in. They're not set apart unto God. They don't love God. don't walk with God. It's gone. If you think that this slide is is too steep or too fast, you don't have teenagers. You really don't. You're not thinking. You're not listening. I mean, what happened? The temple was done. I'll put it in our terms. They all went to church. For 60 years, they went to church every week. I said the reason we're pausing at chapter 7 is to consider what the gap tells us about the nature of spiritual growth and kingdom influence. Let me give you a couple of things I think it tells us. First of all, it tells us that spiritual growth is not automatic. It's It's not automatic. 
It tells us that just as the physical universe is subject to the second law of thermodynamics, so too the spiritual life. It's the second law of thermodynamics. You know, it's, it, organi- that, that which is organized, left alone, moves towards disorganization. In other words, things aren't moving towards more organization. Let me put it in layman's terms. Leave it alone, it'll turn to trash. It's the second law of thermodynamics. And it's true spiritually. It tells us that unless God intervenes, we have no reason to believe that our children will be teaching their children that God loves them and Christ died for them. There's just no reason for us to believe that unless God intervenes. Why do I say that? Because he he had to intervene here. I said these last three chapters are about reforming the people, reorienting them once again to God's great love and his purposes and his kingdom and their relationship to him and living for him. So he had to reform and reorient the people toward that. Well, how does God reform his people? God, what what do you do so that this slide does not happen? Well, notice he sends a man. His name is Ezra. And the good hand of his God is on him. He says it five times in seven and eight. Good hand of his God is on him. Three times in chapter seven, twice in chapter eight. Well, what kind of person, what kind of person is is the good hand of God on? Look again at chapter seven, verse 10. For Ezra had set his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to practice it and to teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. I want to suggest if we are standing at the end of chapter 6, between chapter 6 and chapter 7, and we do not want the next generation to slip off into oblivion, then we are called to be Ezra 10 people. 710 people. Well, what do you mean? People who seek the word. By the way, all the phrases here, just think of it as it's the word of God, okay? To seek the word of God, who practice it, and who teach it. Plain and simple. If you're wondering, what's my purpose in life? 710, Ezra 710. Why am I here, Ezra 710? Let me give you a leadership update. You want me to give you these leadership updates of what's going on, our mission values? We exist, men and women. It's so, at this stage in our own history, we've got to be reminded, we exist to help each other become Ezra 710 men, 710 Women, 710 people. That's it. It's everything. And it makes sense then to pause. And we will go in these last few moments through verse 10. And I want to just dig a little deeper to understand what kind of person the good hand of God rests upon. Follow along in your Bibles. It's, I'll take it a phrase at a time. He says, for Ezra had set his heart to seek 
the law of the Lord. Had said. It's an active verb. It just means the subject's act. Ezra made this decision. It's not a decision someone can make for you. You are going to have to come to a place in your life where you choose. It's your decision to set your heart toward the law of God. This idea of set means that which is firmly established, fixed, secure, as opposed to that which is temporary and insecure. It's the difference between a beach umbrella stuck in the sand and a piling driven in to support a pier. Lisa and I were at, uh, at the beach uh, this last week with our two girls, and um, you know, we're going out on the beach, and each, each day, of course, they, they, they set up these umbrellas, and I was sitting, the guy was setting some extra chairs up one day, and you know, they walk out there, and they've got, the, the guy's got a battery-operated drill. He's got this long auger thing on it. He just walks up to the sand, I mean, it's like butter, and he just sticks it in the sand, and goes, about 18 inches down. And he takes the, 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 the umbrella, and he just plants it in that hole, packs a little bit around it. End of the day, four o'clock, they come around and take him. You know, what he, you know what he does to get it out? He reaches down and he pulls it out. So I was walking across the walkway back to our condo one day. I'm walking and over to the right, I notice there's this pier piling. And you know when I say that, I'm talking about the telephone poles that the piers rest on. There's this piling and it's sticking up about four feet out of the dunes. I don't know how long that thing had been there. But I assure you of this, he didn't drill it with a hand drill and stick it in. It was pounded 18 feet into the ground, into the sand. And that's why it was still there. And you don't walk over and pull it up. It had been set, you see, had set the piling. You know, an umbrella, my goodness, they got to go close them when the breeze kicks up because they're going to blow off down the, the deal. Not that piling that it had been pounded into the ground. Category 5 hurricane, listen, couldn't move it. It'll be there. That's what Ezra had done. It's the nature of the decision that he made. He had set his heart to seek the word of God. You know, Ezra, in a day, our day, when the Bible is just, you know, it's under such almost, it's not, I was going to say scrutiny, because scrutiny is okay, but I think just, it's so dismissed. I mean, there's just so many, I mean, it's, it was written by men, it's got contradictions, it's, you know, it was old, you know, that's, that's just the, the attack on the Bible. Can I tell you this? Ezra had no problem recognizing that what he had was the very words of God. You see, when he says this, look in verse 6. Notice it says, Ezra, he was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses. He had the first five books of the Bible and probably Joshua. He, Ezra knew that Moses had penned that word. And notice how verse 6 continues, which the Lord God of Israel had given. Listen, Ezra knew that Moses wrote it. He also knew that God had given it. 
It did not mean that the word that came through the pen of Moses was it's kind of flawed. It's written by Moses. Moses was just a No, God superintended through Moses that we would have an inerrant, and authoritative word such as true with our New Testament as well. And, you know, we, we tend to think, you know, well, that was ancient days. They weren't very smart. Oh, my gosh, they were brilliant. I mean, we, I do. I tend to think that kind of in those days, they weren't as smart as us because we have cars and we have iPhones. Are we crazy? He did not take his brain and set it aside and go, I don't know. I guess it's the word of God. I mean, it says I should believe it's the word. No, he was brilliant and he trusted and he knew that the God who spoke creation into being Can he not produce an inerrant, authoritative word from himself through humanity? Could he not do that? I mean, is he incapable of doing that if the whole world exists because he spoke it? I want to suggest he can, and he has. And Ezra had set his heart on this word. For Ezra had set his heart, it says. Heart in Old Testament, 850 times it's used. It doesn't mean the organ. You know, sometimes it can, certainly, but it most often is the figurative sense of the inner man. Well, it's even more than the inner man. It's, it's the control center of life. The heart is, it, is, at least in these categories, it's the mind, the will, and the emotions. It's all three. It's that place from which we, we understand and, and then we, we choose with our will and we feel. It's all of those together. I mean, if, you were, if I were to say to you, which is more real, a thought, a choice, or a feeling? Can you grab one? Can, they're all real. <laughs> they're immaterial, so to speak. That's the heart of a man or a woman. I'd say it this way, Ezra had determined with all of his being, mind, will, and emotion. This would not just be an intellectual pursuit. It would not just be a a, a will, I'm going to will it this way. It would not just be an emotional. It would be all three, inseparable, integrated, and complete. How do I say it? A wholehearted commitment, you see. He'd set his whole heart, his whole being upon the authority of God's word. It says, for Ezra had set his heart to seek. What does it mean? What does it mean to seek? It means to inquire, to investigate. It, It didn't say he set his heart to glance at it, to observe it casually. Absolutely not. It's an active verb again. It means he did it all the time. We were talking at home recently about something being lost, and my daughter reminded me of the time I took her to a camp where I was teaching. This is probably seven or eight years ago. And uh, while at the camp, it was for a Campus Crusade fall retreat, and, and I was speaking at this camp. She was with me, and last day, we're eating lunch, and we ate on those trays. You know, you go to the cafeteria, you get your tray, you eat. Then you go, and, and you take all the, food, all the stuff and perishables off. You throw it in the trash, right? And then you set your tray on the deal, and heart and silverware. Well, the last day, I, I, I'm going, and I can't find my phone. By the way, seven or eight years ago, it was an iPhone. You know, it's like, they're no big deal today, per se. But I mean, it was like, oh, my gosh, I can't find my, I can't find my iPhone. We looked all over that thing. I go, I can't. And finally, I just, I, 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 I told Susan, I said, I just, I, I must have thrown it away. And much to her chagrin, 
I climbed in the dumpster. I pull out the bags, probably 10, 15 bags. I went through every one of them. I, I wasn't going to leave one unturned if I haven't found it because it could be in that one. I'm just covered in slime. I don't care. I want my phone. I'm going to find my phone. You see, I was seeking. I was seeking in the nature of Ezra. Of course, it wasn't in there and we found it backstage. I had bent over and it had fallen out backstage and so we get it that way. You know, Proverbs says this. It says, wisdom is found only by those who seek her as silver and search for her as for hidden treasure. I mean, do we come to this book and kind of go, let me give it a, let me read it. It's wants to read it. Or do we come? We go, there's treasure. I mean, there's stuff in here that I need to live. And we search for it. We seek it with our whole heart. For Ezra had set his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to practice it. Here we go. Active verb. He chose to obey what God said. He did it continually. Somewhere between chapter 6 and chapter 7. I'm going to tell you something. The people of God, somewhere in here, they stopped practicing what they knew. They stopped doing what God said. They quit applying I'm going to tell you something. When they got down here, please understand, they still knew the word. It's not like they didn't have the word. Because when they come in chapter 9 and say, hey, some of the priests and everybody, they've married foreign women and we're not supposed to do that. How in the world do they know they're not supposed to do that? They knew it. But not wholeheartedly, you see. I want to suggest using this word if I can. They didn't live it. They knew it, but they didn't live it. I want to use that word because I think sometimes we can say, you know, I know if you know the word, then you need to do it. I do I understand that, and that's true, but I, I, I want to use the word live because sometimes, sometimes we can live just out of our mind and our will. I know what to do, I'm going to do it. I know what to do, I'm going to do it. Hey, the Bible says do this, I'm going to do it. I'm just going to will it, I'm going to do it. You know, and, and we live that way. And I want to suggest that that's not wholehearted. That's just gut willing it. God says bring your emotional life, your heart, your whole being, you see, to this word and live out of that the, the wholeness of mind, will, and emotion. Bring it all as you live it. Because when we, let me say it this way. Jesus says in, in the New Testament that when the Holy Spirit comes, he says, out of your innermost being will flow streams of living water. You see, biblical obedience is not just he said, do it, I'm going to do it. It's out of the change from within. You begin to live the truth of God's word because you are applying it. You're learning. You're bringing your whole life to it. God, I'm going to apply it wholeheartedly. And you're changed. And you see, when you're changed from within, within, not just behavioral change, within change, then you see, hmm, 
You don't just do the truth. You are the truth. Jesus just didn't obey. He was truth incarnate. And I'm just telling you, the spirit lives within us. And we're wholeheartedly committed to his word. We're changed. Gang, we're changed from here. And it comes out. Which leads to the last thing. It actually helps me make sense of the last one. It says, for Ezra had set his heart to seek the law of the Lord, to practice it, and to teach it. You see, it never remained here. He passed on that which he possessed. The narrowest meaning of teach in our context is to impart skills or knowledge. It's certainly the narrowest meaning, and we're not diverging from that, but it makes absolute biblical sense to take that and understand, okay, teach. It's not just that specific imparting of a particular skill. It is that which we, we give and pass on to others from our own life. And some of you are going, well, that's where you lose me here because, Lord, I'm not a teacher like you, like Bill, like Michael, like so-and-so. That's not what he's Listen, to teach, I want to suggest you are a teacher. Number one, you are made in the image of God. Everyone in the room is made in the image of God. If we're image bearers, it means that we are showing the world what God is like simply by being. If you have a pulse, you're teaching someone what God is like. You can't escape that. You know, most importantly, we come to the New Testament and Jesus gives us our commission. If you know Christ, Jesus said to you, go therefore and make disciples. And he goes on to say what? Teaching them to observe. That's not just for pastors. That's just not for missionaries. You understand? That's for all of us who know Christ. I'm going to rephrase Ezra 7.10 in this way. I think it's certainly true to the text think it may be a little easier to grasp and I think it addresses really the heart of the issue if we're standing between Ezra 6 and Ezra 7 knowing this that the faith I hold you know there's no guarantee my kids will and they'll teach their there's no guarantees in that as we stand in here unless God intervenes and how did God intervene he sent a man to stand here who's who God's hand was on him. Why is God's hand on him? Because he, because he sought this word. He'd set his heart upon it to practice it and to teach it. And I want to suggest we will not pass on faith to the next generation apart from being a 710 people. Won't do it. This is how God does it through these, this kind of a person. You're, you're not going to pass your faith onto your kids if you're sticking umbrellas in this. You got to take the piling and pound it, pound it in this, such that it doesn't move and won't move. Gang, our culture, listen, it's always shifting and moving, values changing, all that. We got to stand here. Such that people say to us, man, you're, you're, you're intolerant. No, I'm not intolerant. I've set my heart on this word. I cannot move. And if I move, I can't help you. You understand? I've got to be here, and I'm here because I love you, even though what you're doing is wrong. 
We have no voice, none, if we haven't pile-driven our hearts in this word. And the next generation, they, they won't know unless we do. So what? You have got to make a choice. What's it going to be? I'm just telling you, as an elder board, as teaching pastors, we've chosen. And we've re-upped. I want you to know that. 710. What are we doing as a church? Does it fit in that? Don't do it. Where are we going? 710. Will you? Take a moment and ask the Spirit... Speak to you what might he be calling you to trust, believe, and live. Let's stand together. I'll send you out the prayer. Uh, I had this one note. I, I can't, you know, I got all kinds of notes. I can't fit everything in a message, but this, this just so stuck with me. E. Stanley Jones said this. He said, to preach only what you practice limits the range, but it does increase the power. Boy, that, that hits me because you understand I'll stand up here to preach and Man, for me to preach what I'm not practicing, if I, if I chose to only preach what I'm practicing, I, I wouldn't have much to say. That's not a bad thing. May we as a community of faith be a people who teach only that which we're living. Oh, we may say less, but then when we do speak, it comes with the power of a changed life. Such must, can I say that? Must we be in this day. Father, I do pray by your spirit and your word, may we be a 710 people, not for us, O Lord, and not to us, but for the good of others in the world. And for your great glory, we ask in Christ's name, amen. God bless.